You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel on the show as always. And today is hump day. Today is Wednesday. That means Eric opens up the mailbag and we dive in and we answer the questions that you guys have submitted to us. And I think we got a good wide range of questions on this off-season podcast, and it's going to be a good one to go. Before we dive into the show, though, I want to remind you, you can subscribe today to DuckTerritory.com for $1 for your first month, $9.95 there after that. And that continues to support the podcast and ensures that Eric and I can continue doing these for free if that's the most impactful way for you to help support the show. Okay, Eric, uh, let's get this party going here. All right, first one from Be a Duck 93 Any updates on a new safeties coach? Which names are currently in the running? Is the timeline still looking like the next couple of weeks for an announcement? Hashtag odds and audibles. Uh, I figured this would be a good place to start. Probably yeah. more one of the more pressing items for the Oregon football program is finding a replacement for Keith Hayward, who left a couple of days after Tim DeRuder um, was announced as Oregon's new defensive coordinator, replacing Andy Avalos. Anytime there's a staff opening, it's a pretty big deal and something that we need to address. So um, as far as a timeline goes, I, I would imagine the latest date you'd like to see would be just right before spring practice. And shoot, we don't have an official date yet for um, the first day of spring. I, I'm going to guess that's some time between like March 2nd and 5th or something like that. It's, I mean, it, it'll be sometime in the first week of March, I would imagine unless they're restructuring how they're going to handle spring practice, which could also be the case given COVID. And maybe that's why I haven't heard anything, but I would imagine you'd have to hear something by that first week of March in terms of the safeties coach, just because if you, you'd hate to start, I mean, it would be really bizarre to start spring practice without somebody in that position. Um, so I, I would imagine from a timeline perspective, pretty easy to say, Hey, it's got to be sometime. Probably, I would imagine, a couple of days, at least a week, maybe before, or, or, or I guess potentially a week before spring starts sometime in, in the first week of March. In terms of candidates, Matt, um, who are some names that you think should be known? And is there is there really an update at this point, or are we kind of still in status quo um, from where we were about, I guess, 10 or 12 days ago when, when yeah. we left? That's the, that's the deal, unfortunately, for Oregon, is that it's still kind of about the same – where it was um, there really isn't uh, an immediate need to go out and hire someone right away. You don't want to rush into this hire and figure out down the road that you maybe missed over or looked over a better candidate. Um, and so you're looking at, you know, everything right now, you're coming through all the cracks and making sure that you find the best possible guy. And really you need to have this hire made, sometime during spring football, like ideally beforehand, but we've seen coaches make hires for their staffs during spring ball. It's happened at Oregon. Um, we'll see what happens there. I, names to remember. I, I, I think the longer this plays out, the, the, the better opportunity, the better chance that someone with strong ties to this program gets hired. 
Um, I would keep tabs on UNLV's Trey Watson. Uh, he's a young up and coming coach, someone that was a GA under Oregon's Mario Cristobal uh, a couple years ago. Strong recruiting ties in the Seattle area as well as out west. Um, he was a defensive graduate assistant for, and worked at both safety and corner for the Ducks um, under Levitt and also Avalos when they were coordinators for the Ducks. Um, I would also, you know, look at Kansas defensive back coach Jordan Peterson. Um, this is a guy that's got a lot of experience working under Tim DeRuiter, um, has defensive coordinator experience himself. He's currently a DB coach at Kansas. Um, and then I would also, another familiar name is, is Kwaji, Kwame Adjiman, a guy that's, you know, a defensive analyst for the Ducks right now, played linebacker for the Ducks in the mid-2000s and has coached all over the place uh, as a graduate assistant for Oregon um, and also worked under the – he hasn't coached on the field but has, you know, been an analyst at corner and safety and um, linebacker coach. So uh, this is a guy that's got a ton of experience within the Oregon defense under multiple coaching staffs, multiple head coaches. Um, and then it's, you know, really pulling out, you know, the far you know, depths of, of the – the net here and seeing who all is interested um, and, and pulling out names and, and calling contacts that, you know, and seeing, okay, well, what, what can you do? Uh, you know, I know you maybe can't come here, but do you know someone that would fit this role? And, and that's kind of where we're at right now with Mario Cristobal is he, he's going through candidates. He's calling friends. He's, he's calling uh, people he's close with and, and knows really well and trusts and asking them, you know, okay, if you can't help me, do you think anyone else out there that could? And it's paring down that list. And, you know, I imagine something will will get finalized probably here in the next month or so. But honestly, that's that's a little bit of a guess just because there's really no rush. It's You don't want to make a hire just to make a hire. All right, next one from at CK Quack. Which 2020 deep bench slash red shirt slash scout team players are you excited to see in expanded roles in 2021 thanks for all those dashes there Sequack. i was that was fun to read through <laughs> um i guess it's a fun question to kind of just to take a look at here so we're, we're talking about players who were not starters obviously who we think are going to have bigger roles i think one of the things just before we even jump into names just off the bat here is the, the reality is because oregon returns almost every single one of its starters. Right. There aren't a ton of these guys that are really like just jump off the page. And I think the way I look at this, the positions that did lose starters or did lose. Yeah. Or, or did, let's just say that did lose starters and have, will have new starters in 2021 Our quarterback. Now that Tyler Shuck is gone tight end with Hunter Campmoyer gone. A cornerback with Diamond Lenore gone, and then safety with Nick Pickett gone. So I would look at the, the, the just to start. Those are the spots I am most keeping an eye on from that perspective. I'd obviously also include um, like a Justin Flo who missed the season with injury, who we all think is is going to be really really good. I mean, I think the second highest rated recruit in program history. That's kind of self explanatory. Why would expect something big from from Flo? But if you want to get to these position groups like quarterback, like. I don't even know how I want to – I don't think those guys are like deep bench, red shirt. I mean, like it's probably going to be Anthony Brown, I would think, to start the season. 
as we said on our, our uh, emergency podcast on Friday after Shuck made his announcement. So like, there's not really a deep bench guy to be excited about. I don't think um, tight end is probably a spot where I'm like, yeah, I, I'd love to see a little bit more of what Spencer Webb can do. Hoping, he, hoping he's healthy. I'd like to see what, and I guess DJ Johnson did start a couple of games, but I think he still qualifies as somebody who's new to the position. I'm excited to see kind of what he can be uh, in 2021. And then at corner to me, and I've said this before remains the position where I think there is just the most, kind of like uncertainty about how that's going to go. Um, you've got a guy like a DJ James who's played a fair amount, and I would say he maybe isn't even quite deep bench as much as he is just a reserve guy who played 15, 20 snaps per game, and he was out there quite a bit. You think back to the conference championship game, the play he made in the end zone to save a USC touchdown. He was out there, and I think actually got beat for a long pass against Iowa State in the Fiesta Bowl, so that's not a real positive memory, but he was somebody who played quite a bit. He had memorable moments, but I'm really curious to see some of these young players um, like a Dante Manning. What can he provide? We all know how highly regarded he is. What about Triquez Bridges? Another guy who's been in the program. He's moved positions a little bit. He was playing safety when he arrived. He's now been at corner for probably about a year and a half. Is, is he ready to make a contribution? Um, so those are kind of the guys at corner that, that stand out. And then safety, it's, I, I, I guess... Jordan Happel played quite a bit last year. Bennett Williams played quite a bit last year. Steve Stevens remains, I think, a player in part just because of his recruiting ranking and because of some of the upside he shows when he's out there that I just kind of keep thinking he's going to break through. But if it's not this year for Steve, I kind of go like, when is it going to be? Because the reality is he plays the position that he was Pickett's backup to start last season. Um, if he can't win the job this year, that would be, I think, pretty disappointing. And at that point, you go like, if it can't be 2021, Oregon's recruiting at a high enough level. Um, Williams could, in theory, come back for 2022. Um, is Stevens ever going to get his shot? So, I mean, I just kind of run through those position groups, and I think those are guys to me that that stand out. Matt, you you you, I, you probably agree with some of the names I mentioned. Are there ones other than the guys I ran through, maybe at position groups where the starter is back, that you go, man, I, I can't wait to see what this guy looks like. The first name that, that came to my mind was at a position where the starters are back, and that is uh, Braden Swinson at defensive end. I know Brandon Dorlands is um, going to assume kind of that starter role for Oregon at defensive end, and uh, I, I look at this and think Dorlands is probably going to become a star player at the Pac-12 level. Um, he will be a sophomore again in 2021 he'll be going into his junior year which is crazy to think about right um in 2021 academically uh but nonetheless this is a guy that, that's gonna be i think a really good player for the ducks but right behind him Braden swinson i was pretty impressed with him in the seven games that he played for oregon off the bench for the ducks and remember this is a guy that that played kind of a considerable amount of snaps towards the end of the year when Oregon had Folio on the roster, Jordan Scott on the roster, Dorless was still playing a ton. Keon Ware Hudson was playing a little bit. You had Kayvon Thibodeau obviously doing his thing. Um, I think Swinson is going to be that next guy for Oregon uh, to really shine in 2021 with, with more snaps available for him. Um, I do wonder also about Christian Williams, 
maybe this is a guy like we all kind of look at Popo Amave as as the de facto starter at nose tackle for the Ducks in 2021 if they go with a 3-4 defense. Um, but I, I think Christian Williams could push his way into that mix. He started two games for Oregon in 2020. He played in all seven. Um, could could be a, a difference maker for, for the Ducks next season. Um, and I, I think this is – I'm picking a starter, but I think Mace Funa. Like, sure. I think 2020 was a year in which he was maybe the most impacted player on defense be, with – the lack of proper offseason training. Like he didn't really feel like he was in his best shape until the end of the year. And I think he played terrific against USC. He played pretty good against Iowa state. Um, I, I think with a, a traditional offseason again, and they can, they can get him down to the weight that he needs to be at and he can be in shape going into the beginning of the year. That might be a guy where he all of a sudden explodes uh, in his super sophomore season in t- 2021 defensively. Um, offensively, I-, I know starters are all back, but I feel like Chris Hudson is a guy that showed a lot of potential and with better quarterback play could produce better numbers and have more opportunities for that. And so I, I think that's another one at the receiver spot. We're so focused on Franklin Thornton coming into the program. I think Chris Hudson might be someone too, that could have a big kind of breakout year for the ducks. As you were talking about Swinson, I did realize in terms of departed starters, Jordan Scott, who was by the time he left kind of a more reserve than a starter and Austin fall, was a starter. So they did lose a couple guys up front and you ran through the names there. Brandon Dorless, Christian Williams being the two that stand out. And I think you probably could argue with pretty strong ease that like Dorless was more starter than a, a deep bench guy. So maybe right. he doesn't qualify, but name certainly should acknowledge that Oregon did lose um, a couple of starters or a couple of quasi starters on the defensive line. Um, and they'll have to replace those guys. And, and I think we've kind of run through, I, I'm also very high on Swinson. I'm curious to see how he, how he kind of performs. I think um, that defensive line group is going to be really interesting to see from a depth perspective, how it comes together because they did lose two key players and basically there's just a lot of guys who haven't really played very much and mm-hmm. that are going to be forced to play in 2021. So, um, and they only bring in one true freshman right now, Christian Williams. I was listening, you know, <laughs> the other player they might add would be someone like JT Tumalau, um, who's obviously would be a, a game changer. But like, I, I just look at that group and think the defensive line is also a spot where it's probably not going to be too much of a surprise who starts. Like, I think Dorless is going to start at one spot. I'd probably give Christian Wood or Christian Williams. Uh, the the slight nod above Popo Amave, but those two guys are going to be certainly competing for that nose tackle spot. Um, I think it's pretty clear like what the the top of the depth chart looks like on the D line, but there's going to be some depth opportunity for some guys that haven't played very much. Maybe it's a Suave Poti, maybe it's a um, Jason Jones, a player who we were really high on last year, at least in theory. Maybe he steps up. So some names on defensive line, I think I should acknowledge too before we we jump to the third question. Real quick, real quick. Yeah, I want to throw this at you. Um, it, it, I feel I don't want to. I don't want to just ignore the accomplishments of a Jordan Scott and an Austin Folio and diminish their mm-hmm. importance and the, their roles that they had for Oregon's defensive line being so good the last four years. But it does feel like Oregon's D line, even though those two guys are gone in twenty twenty one 
should be significantly better overall in 2021. Do you agree with that? I don't know if significantly better, but I think you could make an argument that, I mean, like I said a second ago, Jordan Scott, and I don't want to say he got benched because I think that's a really harsh word of way of putting it, but he was not in the starting lineup very much down the stretch. And I think that was somewhat telling of kind of the way that position group was headed. And Austin Folly was, was a consistent starter. And I think, like I look at Folly and think he is just that quintessential four-year guy who is very, very steady. You know, he had some injuries, but he, when he was healthy, he was just extremely reliable, made plays, you know, never really a superstar, but, you know, over four years as a, I think he started probably, the, the total number of starts is probably closer to three years as a starter, but he started games throughout his, you know, all four years he was at Oregon. Like he was a valuable piece of it. But like, I, I do think that there are going to be guys in the roster who are a little higher upside players. And um, I think you could see Brandon Dorless and Christian Williams both just be better players than Jordan Scott and Austin Folio. And I think you could see like, like some of the names we talked about, Braden Swinson, Jason Jones, um, somebody like some of those kind of names step up and be big players. And actually we talked about this, we talked about um, Austin's name. And this made me think here as well, that you've, you've got Austin's younger brother, Drew Folio, who does not play on the defensive line, but that's another one of those candidates for the top kind of bench guys we could see make a jump, I think, in 2021. Because Andrew Folio switched spots. He's playing kind of a hybrid position similar to Mace Funa when they were in a dime package last year. He played a lot there, and he was pretty impactful. So I could see that being another name just to throw out there. But I think big picture in terms of the question you posed, like, yeah, I could see them being better. I don't know if I would say considerably better, but like the upside – Whenever we have a guy like Kayvon Thibodeau, which, by the way, it's pretty crazy. We spent like the last four minutes talking to you line and didn't bring up his name once, really. Um, anytime you have a player of that caliber, you could just see that group really, really take a step. And, and I do think some of these younger guys are, are going to be ready. Third one from at NatFod. Recruiting question. What's going on with 2022 quarterback A.J. Duffy? A couple of days before he released his final four, a ton of crystal balls all went out for Arizona State. And then he left Arizona State out of his top four. Is Arizona State really done? And what are the chances of Oregon landing him? Um, Duffy is one of the top-rated quarterbacks on the West Coast. Um, you know, as we've said, every class this is going to happen. Oregon's going to go try to find the top quarterback recruit they can get. They did it with Ty Thompson in 2021. Duffy certainly, um, at this point, maybe maybe Duffy is their top guy. I know. Um, Malik Murphy, I think, was a, a five-star kid from SoCal who just committed to, to Texas. Texas. But, but what, over the weekend, I think that was like on Saturday or something. Um, maybe that kind of decision sort of swayed some of Oregon's interest in a guy like Duffy, who is not quite as highly regarded as Murphy, but right in that kind of conversation. Um, I know a while ago, there was a lot of feeling that Duffy was kind of the guy, that, or, or Oregon was kind of in a good position for Duffy, I should say. Where are things right now? Do you, do you feel like Oregon's in pretty good shape with A.J. Duffy, or, or is this a situation where it really is kind of up in the air? And it is strange. I should notice, like, I, 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 Nat, Nat thought is not alone here. I noticed as well that there were a lot of Arizona State kind of crystal balls and interest, and then I did see that, that uh, top four come out, and, and I don't think the I would look against it. that right now. <laughs> yeah? I, I, I personally, based off what we're hearing and stuff, Arizona State's still in it. Um, I'm more I'm more concerned about Arizona State than I am 
other schools in the mix right now. I mean, obviously Oregon's there, Michigan State's there, Penn State's there, but I I, I think Arizona State's going to be in this till the end. Um, build some suspense, build some interest. Remember, this is these are kids, you know, trying to set things up for themselves to make big splashes. And I get it. And I understand why that happens. I think ASU is still in there. Um, I actually think it's going to be incredibly hard to recruit a, a, a four-star high level quarterback to Oregon in 2022, because let's just look for a second at Oregon's roster as of right now, going into the 2022 football season, I understand we haven't played 2021, but let's just, if you're a 2022 quarterback and you're looking at the depth chart for Oregon, okay. Jay Butterfield is a true freshman quarterback in 2021 will be a red shirt freshman or a sophomore in 2022. Robbie Ashford will be a true freshman quarterback in 2021. So he will be either a redshirt freshman or a true sophomore going into the 2022 season. Ty Thompson is a true freshman quarterback in 2021, and he will either be a sophomore or a redshirt freshman going into that year. Tyler Shuck is gone. Anthony Brown will have graduated. So you have three freshman quarterbacks on the roster going into the 2021 season. One of those guys will probably be a sophomore. The other two will probably be redshirt freshmen. And if you don't win the job, if you're a 22 quarterback and you don't win the job as a true freshman, you're probably going to sit at Oregon for four years. So I, I think it's going to be extremely difficult to find a high-level quarterback that is you know one of the best in the country that's looking to play right away because just the odds are against that guy to 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 win the job. Um, I I think there's probably a better opportunity for Oregon to go like junior college or for Oregon to take a transfer or a grad transfer or go out and try and find a quarterback that's similar to what Kale Millen was was hey this is a guy that's a three star guy. He's maybe not at his best right now as a high school senior, but we think in three years he could be amazing if he gets proper development, doesn't have injuries, and can get some coaching and just grows into his body. And by that time, the job will have opened up again, and he's content with waiting and developing himself a little bit, and then you play it out. Um, I I think that's probably the route Oregon's going to have to go in 2022. Unless they they can identify a quarterback that's a high level guy that's not a, scared of competition and can go out and, and win the job, and I don't think you know Murphy was one of those guys. Duffy is one of those guys. I don't know if there's anyone else out there right now that or, that that Oregon's heavily involved in. Maybe Gavin Wimsett from K- Kentucky um, that you look at and say. He can win the job day one as a true freshman. I don't know if anyone else out there is that caliber, but everyone else that Oregon's looking at right now also has a quarterback mindset of, I want to be a starter in at least one or two years. And I don't, I don't think any of those guys that are left can conceivably do that at Oregon because of the depth chart. 
Like I would take Ty Thompson over any of those guys on the board. I would probably take Jay Butterfield over any of those guys on the board right now. I think it's going to be really interesting here if we're talking 2022 quarterback recruiting is what is the fallout from a roster perspective of let's say Ty Thompson does win this job and maybe it's not to start the season, but it's during, during the year. Do we see Butterfield or Ashford leave? And if that's the case, Anthony Brown will be gone. You could have a roster where you just have like two, two guys. So you need to find somebody in 2022. And that's where maybe, maybe it is go find a grad tra- or, you know, or, or, or transfer of some sort. So you have some veteran presence there or a, or or a junior if, college guy. What if it's flip, flip it. What if it's Anthony Brown that wins mm-hmm. the job and proceeds to start day one or week one to the final game of the year. Right. All the way through. Okay. All the way through. And Oregon finds a way that, that maybe they, they play Ty Thompson four games, they play Jay Butterfield four games, and they play Robbie Ashford four games to preserve the redshirt for all three of those guys. In 2022, you now go into the season with three redshirt freshman quarterbacks. Do you want three redshirt freshman quarterbacks on your roster? Like, and let's just say, like, I, I think there's a good chance that, like, you like you were going down the path. I think there's a good chance that one of those three guys transfers too in the next year and a half. Yeah, I, I, I just think you're. It's a really tenuous spot right now from a quarterback perspective. Of just a couple weeks ago, this was not a concern because you're thinking depth in 2022 should be fine, and then you see Tyler Shuck and Cal Millen leave, which in, indicates that Brown probably is the guy for parts of 2021, and then. It shifts, and I do think like what Anthony Brown can do for Oregon ends up being really significant for the long term of that position group. Because, like I said, like there's two paths this can go. I think. I mean, I wrote actually wrote a story. There's kind of three. There's one where Anthony Brown wins the job, he carries it, which Matt just said. Anthony Brown wins a job but loses it, or Anthony Brown never wins the job and one of these right. freshmen wins it. Right now, if it's door two or three that could lead to one of these other freshmen transferring. And that's where you do get in a tough spot of suddenly you only have two quarterbacks on scholarship on the roster in 2022. And that's where you, you would actually getting a guy like an AJ Duffy or, or whoever it is that becomes really important. Like I, it, it, it the, the quarterback in 2022 kind of could go like the, just what the value is from a recruiting perspective, I think could go in two wildly different positions, depending upon what happens on the field in 2021. Like if a, you know, if Anthony Brown just wins the job and he carries it all the way through the season, it sets it up where I think all three guys at least stick around and kind of see what's going to happen um, through 2022. And that means you've got the depth needed that where maybe you don't have to be quite as aggressive with a quarterback. You probably still want to add one like Matt suggested. Maybe it's a transfer. Maybe it's a, kind of a, a, a lower-rated recruit who's kind of a project, or it goes the other way, and one of these guys solidifies he's a long-term guy for the future, and one of these guys transfers out, and then you're left going, gosh, we really need to find somebody. So I, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this, this plays out. Um, and I would be intrigued with kind of what this looks like I think it's going to be maybe a thing where um, they kind of are in kind of wait and see mode from a quarterback perspective, maybe even into, you know, the mid midway through the season, maybe they don't even sign one in the December period and they wait till February. I don't know. I, I just think it's going to be really interesting in this quarterback spot. We talk about kind of just the, what spring ball is going to be like. I think there's a big ripple effect 
through not just through spring for what the and, and into the fall, but also just long term. Um, this is going to be really big for the for the position and for the program because it is the most important position in the program long term. Is is kind of what twenty twenty one looks like from a quarterback perspective. What if what if Anthony Brown wins the job? Okay, and like he's he is the guy. It's clear. Hey, this is your best option to win football games and to win the league. Do you think it's still beneficial for Oregon to find a way, whoever it may be? It could be Robbie Ashford that emerges as the, the, the second best quarterback okay. in, in 2021, whoever it is. Because remember, they all have red shirts. Is it in Oregon's best interest to still find a way to play one of the three true freshman quarterbacks in as many games as possible and burn a red shirt so that you maybe break up the class a little bit. So you have a sophomore and two freshmen going into the 2021 season where, and one of those guys plays in maybe eight games and has 70 attempts on the year from a passing perspective. Yeah. You're flirting with more dangerous territory because you don't want this to be another Darren Thomas kind of situation or even what was it Dennis Dixon I think had something similar where you lose a year because you're playing him as a backup and not as a starter and you kind of you know you're looking back in four years going gosh if we could have had an extra starting year there for let's just say Robbie Ashford because that's the example you use that could have been a huge amount of difference um like I I don't know I'd probably rather just try to save as many many years of eligibility I get your point in terms of splitting up from a recruiting class perspective and the other, the argument would be like, let's say it's Ty Thompson because that's probably the most likely of the group. And if we think he's truly as special as people are insinuating, and he's only going to be like he's going to be a three and done anyway, or he's going right. to start for three years and jump anyway, then like I get that point in terms of that way you can separate some of the class a little bit. But I think you could run into sort of a dangerous spot here of like you're kind of maybe. I don't want to say like burn a year for a guy who might actually you'd want to keep later on, but like you do run that possible scenario of like, let's say you, let's say it is Ashford and he wants to start again, you know, he's going to be the starter in 22, 23 and 24. And you go and he, and he's really good those seasons. And he wants to come back in 2025 with, which by the way, probably slightly unlikely just because if you're a starter at this kind of school for that long, you're, you're probably going to jump unless you're Justin Herbert. Um, but let's say, for example, that Ashford does want to come back in 2025. What well, kind of stinks that you might have ruined that opportunity by playing him in 2021 in moments that weren't determining the total outcome of the season, I guess. That that was I was going to counter with is, is there anyone on this roster of the three true freshmen that we say, hey, he's definitely not going to be here for five years? Like, I, 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 I could point to any of them. Butterfield and Ashford won't be here at Oregon, or Butterfield and Thompson won't be quarterbacks for five years at Oregon if they play, if they get the job early. Yeah, and I think that's totally fair. You know, and, and that's where I actually feel like if you were like, I mean, I think I'd be probably surprised if any of those guys are here that long just because of the way the quarterback position works. It's like if you're, if you're starting, you're probably going to go to the NFL. If you're not starting, you're going to go somewhere else. So, so maybe that is the strategy. I just I just think you kind of run into dangerous territory of kind of presuming that a player sure. is going to leave and then you kind of maybe don't maximize his time. I think you kind of want to make sure you you give the player the most opportunity. And, and the cool sure. thing with the, the four-game redshirt rule is that you do at least get an audition period without using the year. And, like, yes. 
And I think that's where you brought up earlier. If it's really this close and Brown, you feel good enough is like, and you get opportunity is like, maybe you rotate and you play all of these guys a little bit and you, in, in some of these games. And, and that way you provide these in-game auditions, which I think, I mean, like I really would push for that if I, if I was on the staff, because I think Oregon did Tyler Shuck a great disservice by not playing him more in 2018 or 2019. I can think of specific games where they could have thrown him out there that they didn't. Um, and not that that would have totally changed the player he is in 2020, but I do think it could have helped a little bit. Like it would have given him some experience. Instead, he jumps into a season where he plays only conference teams. He's pretty good for some of the games, but really loses his kind of his, you know, lost his groove and confidence and everything. And, and then we saw what happened. Like, I don't know if like playing 50 more snaps in 2018 and a hundred more snaps in 2019 would have mattered that much, but it couldn't have hurt. I don't think. And at, at worst case, it would have given the staff maybe a greater inclination that Chuck wasn't cut out for this and they would have gone Anthony Brown. Sure. So, like, I, I think there's a lot of different ways you can go about it, but I would say in 2021, regardless of who the starter is, I do think you need to, you don't want to rotate because that's not good. We saw what happened this year, but you do want to find opportunities in games that aren't competitive for some of these guys to at least get some run. Cause that was not a strength. I think in the past couple cycles. All right. Last one here from at area scout 73. Why should we play SEC teams if they never come west of Dallas? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Thanks for using the hashtag, guys. Again, that makes it easiest for me to find these questions and get them in the queue for the show. Um, I mean, it's it's a valid question, right? Um, you know, it, if you're not going to play a true home and home, it, it isn't necessarily the most beneficial thing. At the same time, at the same time, like, bear with me here for a second. I, I do think that if Oregon had beaten Auburn in Dallas, they would have given themselves kind of a mulligan in conference play. Like, if that season, yes. let's say they would have held on and, and you know, Verona McKinley doesn't get beaten on a jump ball in the last minute of the game and Oregon yes. beats Auburn, I think they might have made the playoff. They're in the playoff. Right? Even if they lost to Arizona State at the end of the year, because they, they would have been like squarely in that two to three, probably. I, I'd have to go back and look and see kind of what the resumes of the other schools are here. But like, I think they would have been squarely in the picture. They lose to Arizona State, but then they rally and they beat Oregon State. They win the conference championship game dominant fashion. I think they would have snuck back in, probably. Um, so that's the argument there is you do create a mulligan, in a, which is in, kind of an important thing because I think we've talked about it before. I don't think there's been a Pac-12 champion that's gone unbeaten in conference play, like gone 9-0. and and There hasn't been. Like, period. Um, I think the last 9-0 and team was the year that was, was Oregon's 12-0 and season. They lost to Auburn, but that was the year before Pac-12 started doing um, conference championship games. So no team's ever gone 10-0. and And beating a marquee team, whether it be SEC, ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, whatever it is, Oregon obviously is going to have an opportunity this year with Ohio State. Um in Columbus, like that sets you up to at least have a game where you falter. And I have said this a hundred times. I really don't like the model of college football of you just can't lose any games after the month of September, basically. Um, you know, I think that really stinks, but like for Oregon, that's the reality of what it is. And so you do, yep. there, there is a benefit. It might not seem like it if you're going to lose these games, but if you win these games, which is obviously why you schedule them, you provide yourself a little bit more breathing room, a little bit more of an opportunity to maybe, you, you, you know, you stub your toe in Tempe like you did in 2019 to, to get back in the conversation and probably make it in. Yeah. Like I, I, 
it's a catch twenty two. Like the conference needs to play these games because they need to start winning them to justify. And that's also true. College football playoff, and that's also big. Yeah, and where they are, but at the same time. Like you don't want to be the team to play it because if you lose, you basically kill yourself from a playoff perspective because to date, no one has gone undefeated in league play. It hasn't happened yet. It'll eventually happen, but history shows that if it does happen, it's not going to be a regular occurrence that everyone goes undefeated in conference play. It's like a really, really special team to do that. Yeah. Like even Oregon's championship team that, that played in the championship game in 14, they lost Arizona at home. Yep. And it wasn't a good loss. Like it wasn't like I mean, they, they played bad in that game and you know, they didn't, they didn't lose I me. Mean, I understand Arizona played in the Pac-12 championship game, but no one viewed that Arizona team as this super powered team that was going to, you know, go on and, and win the Fiesta bowl when they played, I think it was Boise state uh, in, in the Fiesta bowl that year. But at the, I, I don't know. I, I see the I see the points of playing them. Um, I would like I, I do think like Oregon's going to Atlanta to play Georgia in like the Mercedes Dome or whatever it's called, and I think it's in 2023 or 2022. One of the two, one of those two years, and it's like, what's the point of that? Like that's that is that's a home game for Georgia, like. And it's going to be considered neutral, but it's it's a home game. Like, might as well just go to Athens and say, "Hey, you know, we'll play and we'll play you in Athens, and we won't get a return game, but we we need X amount of away tickets or something of that nature." I don't know, but if you're going to play Georgia in a neutral site game, don't play it in Atlanta. Play it in Dallas. Like, at least make Georgia fans have to travel a little bit. Make it a little bit difficult for them to you know to dominate the the stadium. Like that that game will have. 10,000 duck fans. And I don't know how much that stadium holds, but let's just say it's 70,000. It'll be 60,000 Georgia fans and 10,000 duck fans. It'll be a true road game environment. That's the game. I don't see the value of playing in that nature, unless you're going to get a home and home. Yes. Stadium is a, is 80,000 in, uh, in, in Atlanta. I I mean, do you see more than 10,000 duck fans going to that game? I don't. I don't either, and I mean, I guess the one... And it's going to ca- be sold out. I was going to say, the one caveat could be, it'll depend, it's a couple years down the line, so we don't know what's, what'll have happened the years before, but like maybe Oregon like plays for or is really, really good the year before that, and they come in with really big expectations, and the fan base is really, really into it, and then they bring 15,000, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. And they bring a slightly larger amount, so... No, I think this is an interesting question in terms of, of kind of, is it worth it? Like, I, I don't even really care as much if it's SEC, ACC. Like, I don't care about the conference, but I do think there's a fair point in terms of, like, especially look like. So my my point earlier was like, it, it's worth playing these games because if you win. But I also think there's a valid point of of like, if they're not going to do the return trip, which yep. is not by the way, not the case with all of them. Ohio State was scheduled to be in Eugene this year. Obviously, COVID ruined that. I'm still hopeful that they're going to find some way to figure out a way to get the Buckeyes back to Eugene because that would have been probably the biggest, most, but I think the, the, the marquee non-conference home game at Autzen Stadium ever. Um, but, like, I think there is a point to, to be had of, like, if you're going to call it a neutral site game in Atlanta or let's say you go play Alabama and you're playing that game in 
in Florida or something. I don't know. Maybe it's also in Atlanta because that's close and it's a big, big hub. But like whatever it is, like that's not neutral. That's not fair. And if they're not going to do a return visit, I understand do frustration it. from that point of view. I also still feel like you give yourself a chance. And if, you, if the only way you can play these teams and it gives you a shot to sneak into a playoff and we already all know, like, I mean, here, here's, here's the spot that the Pac-12 is at right now. And it's different, unfortunately, from other conferences. They have to take risks. Um, yeah. the SEC is in a spot where they don't need to take these risks. They're going to be in the conversation regardless of what their non-conference schedule is. That's just the way it goes. Pac-12 does not have that luxury. And so the luxury or the, the risk the Pac-12 has to take, like the, like if you're playing a, a game of poker or a game of blackjack or whatever it is, you have to like, you know, like you can't sit and wait for perfect hole cards because you're probably not going to get them. And so, you know, you can't sit here and wait for pocket aces if you're playing poker or, you know, whatever, or a perfect 21 if you're playing blackjack, you, you, you kind of have to sort of go, hey, we're going to take a shot with a king jack here, and maybe we're behind a, an ace king that's going to take everything on our power for it to work out. Look at me really trying to use my, my former poker knowledge here to, to try to make a, a really kind of convoluted metaphor. But my point is, is like, I kind of, there's also the risk factor for schools in the Pac 12 of you, you, you might need to just do something that probably isn't fair. Maybe it's going to be, un, maybe it's not super likely you win the game. But in that off chance you do, you finally set yourself up to get over the hump, to maybe play for a national championship. And if you can actually go out and win that game, all of those risks are worth it. Yeah. You go win that game, you play in it. Let's say, let's say that everything falls to, comes together here. Oregon wins the game in Atlanta. They win the conference. They win it outright. They, they're the second, you know, rated two in the college football playoff. They win the college football playoff. Guess what? That becomes a huge, completely different storyline. Everybody's feeling a totally different about it. And that might totally reshape the narrative for the next two to three seasons for the Pac-12. I mean, so that's kind of where I'm kind of like, we've Pac-12 has dug themselves a hole. Maybe the only way to get out is just to just kind of go out there and, and take some crazy risks. And maybe that's why a game like this makes more sense. But I, I'm with you in terms of like from an equity perspective, it's not even at all. The league needs to really, I mean, this is going too down a rabbit, too far down a rabbit hole. But I'm enjoying it. Let's go. The league really needs to push the new Raider Stadium in Vegas. Yes. And they need to have a marquee game every year, first or second weekend of the season played there. Like, and it, 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 it needs to be a rotation and, and, and sorry, Oregon state, sorry, Washington state, sorry, Cal, sorry, Arizona, but it, it truly needs to be Washington, Oregon, Stanford, USC, Maybe UCLA, maybe Arizona State, maybe Utah. And those seven schools every year, shoot, do it twice. Do it week one, week three. And every year, two, two games, you know, two schools rotate into Vegas and they play a non-conference power five versus power five opponent in a neutral setting game that, that, that needs to happen. And that creates a situation in which the, from a fan base perspective, Oregon knows that, or from a fan base perspective, the conference knows that if they put Oregon and Vegas against Georgia, 30,000 duck fans or 40,000 duck fans are going to go to that game. If they put USC against Alabama in Vegas, 30, 40,000 Trojan fans will go to that game. 
and it'll it'll truly create a home environment at, at minimum uh, a shaded towards Pac-12 school environment against a Power Five team in a neutral setting, which we've not we haven't seen very often. We don't see that where you know a Pac-12 school plays a Power Five school from an ACC or SEC or Big Ten or Big Twelve in a neutral setting, and it's it's mostly Pac-12 fans. We, we don't. We, I can't recall a game being like that. No, I can't. I, I I can't either. I can't either. And that's. I mean, and you know, and I think that's that's unfortunate. And I'm with you. I think the Las Vegas thing, like, I mean, regard, Vegas or not, like, the reality is the Pac-12 has as many, if not more, NFL stadiums, mm-hmm. you know, media markets than most of the other conferences do. I mean, you know, I mean, outside of like, basically, you look at it and you go there are a ton of NFL teams in this part of the country. And that means that there are a ton of NFL stadiums sitting around that we could be using for these type of games. The fact that Pac-12 never really looked into it, or I shouldn't say they didn't look into it, I don't know that. But the fact that they never took advantage of that, at least they never had games at one of those places really, is kind of mind-boggling. And I hope that that's a shift under new leadership here once Larry Scott goes. And I think that hire has to be hopefully somebody that is really willing to kind of do whatever it takes because we've seen kind of what laissez-faire leadership looks like and kind of what the result of that was. But I'm with you, Matt. I think that makes a ton of sense in terms of take advantage of these markets that the Pac-12 has. And Vegas is a perfect one in terms of it is not in a Pac-12 city, which is, I think, an attractive thing. And it is a fantastic place for people to travel to. People, people want to go to Las Vegas regardless of if there's a football game, a basketball game, whatever it is. You tie it to that. I mean, you see, we've seen what the Pac-12 has had success with from a Pac-12 conference tournaments in Vegas. We've seen that the NBA, NBA has its summer league in Las Vegas. Um, Vegas is a great destination. Pac-12 should take advantage of it. It's right in the footprint. Um, obviously, it's none of the schools are there, but it's close enough where you could easily coordinate something there and, and have it be fan-friendly from a travel perspective for, for basically every school in the conference. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audible's podcast, Mailbag Edition. Thank you for submitting your questions. Thank you for listening to the show. For Eric Scopel, I'm Matt Brain. We'll do another show later this week. Until then, we'll talk to you later. Talk to you later, folks. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball and baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does, (laughs) nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.